Welcome to the Few Podcast. Never in the field of human contact was so much owed by so many to so few. So you want to become one of the few. You can't skip steps. You have to put one foot in front of the other. Things take time. I have a dream. dream. Hear inspiring stories from the few and learn about what it takes to turn your dreams into a reality. It's a day for all Australians, isn't it? It's a day that brings us all together. Welcome back, everybody, to another episode of The Few. And today we're continuing our journey into the Matrix. We are going back into a, a deep dive, a deep dive into the digital world, which really is the uh, that kind of world is the is the winner when it comes to COVID. If you think about it, everyone we've had on the show <laughs> either has an online business or some exposure to some digital startup or digital something or other. We'll probably explore what the hell digital means. It's been a pretty uh, good year for that world. And today, I think we've probably got one of the best people in the country talking to us about digital. Sean, I guess what you and I are doing right now is a uh, is a case of digital disruption. I mean, we weren't really consuming content through podcasts five years ago, were we? Absolutely not. And uh, we didn't actually start a podcast until all the COVID stuff happened either. So we actually made a decision to step more into that digital space as well. So it's definitely something that uh, has piqued our interest and something we're focusing on now for sure. Evolve and embrace the disruption. Uh, and to help us do that and to make sense of it all, we've got uh, Australia's strategic digital mastermind. Gosh, who doesn't this man write for? He writes for BRW, AFR, The Australian Marketing Magazine, cmo.com.au. And he's the, I need to ask him what this actually is, the 225th person to be inducted into the Certified Experience Economy Experts. So with no further ado, we're going to introduce today's guest, Mark Cameron. G'day, Mark. Thanks so much for joining Sean and I on the show, mate. Uh, the few, mate. Hey, guys. Yeah, and thank you very much. Really, really looking forward to the conversation today. Awesome. Thank you, mate. We were just talking about Ricardo before. Clearly, the shoey just uh, <laughs> popped right in my head, mental priming and, uh, and association. Uh, Mark, can you, can you share with our listeners what the Certified Experience Economy Experts I mean, it's a mouthful, but, but obviously it's a, it's a big deal. So experience economy has become a kind of a term that's been used pretty broadly over the last 10 years or so. It's really sort of speaking about how people are willing to spend more for fantastic experiences, particularly as they, if they combine, I suppose, products and, you know, it's things that create big memories, you know, or have an emotional connection that we're willing to pay more for. There was a couple of people who wrote a book called The Experience Economy. And I met one of them, Joe Pine, when I was doing some work in the US and then sort of and then doing some innovation work in New Zealand following that. And we just sort of stayed connected. And he said to me one day, look, you need to come over to Minneapolis. You need to come do the experience economy certification because there's only a few people in the world who do it. Sort of, you know, people from Lego and from Disney and all these sort of really interesting places. And he said, it'd be perfect. So um Sure enough, I went over and, and spent a few days over Minneapolis in, in winter, thankfully, because it gets bloody cold there. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, yeah, did that course. And it was really, it's really sort of understanding kind of the economics behind experience, sort of, you know, why experiences are different. It's understanding how where businesses, when they invest in high level experiences, how it impacts their share price, and then how to kind of manage that and do that in a way 
at scale. So some businesses can you know actually find a way through that without lots of like sort of fluffy words. So that's that's fundamentally what it's about. As I said, not many people have have done it, but it's been um, very very impactful. I think I'm the only person in Australia, to be honest, who's ever done it. When you explain it, it makes sense. It feels like it's one of those things that is kind of a, I guess, experience is something like you feel, right? It's a bit like explaining what love is. It's a feel thing. And to see something that becomes tangible around that, it's, it's, uh, it's really interesting. I mean, you know, a lot of businesses have real world experiences associated with them. I mean, even, even a hospital is an experience. Going to a fun park is an experience. And the point of this is actually saying some of those experiences are good, some of them are bad, but the more you design them and the more you're conscious of what those experiences are for your customers the better you can make them. And if you make them really better, then you make them better, then you create a competitive advantage and people are willing to pay for that. I remember, I know the uh, the expression, I think it's, uh, people don't remember what you do. People don't remember what you say, but they remember how you make them feel. Effectively, you know, that experience is the piece yeah. that people take with them. You know, that's what they actually remember. Yeah, that's exactly right. Exactly right. Do you think that it's a concept that needs to, pervade everything that we do? Do you think education needs to be experiential? Do you think the way that we treat teams and people at work needs to be experiential? Is there a fine balance? Because I'd imagine the thing about an experience is it's kind of fixed time and place. You know, if you if you go on a roller coaster and experience it once, it's great, but you do it 20 times, you're probably going to throw up, right? So is there, yeah, yeah. What do you yeah. define an experience? Good question. Kind of anything is an experience. Any business process can be an experience if it, if it engages a customer. So, you know, going online, finding a book that you want to buy, clicking buy, and then it arriving at your house is an experience. Now, you can have a good experience there by the fact that there's not a lot of buttons and you don't have to keep entering your details in and the book arrives really quickly, or you can have a bad experience because they make you constantly re-log in and put your information in and then find your credit card every single time. And then they tell you it's going to arrive on Monday and it doesn't get there until Friday. You know, that's a bad experience. Can you measure that? Is there a, a scale of experience in terms of, I guess it's a review on Google is probably a, a great indicator of an experience. Yeah, yeah. I mean, and there's, there's, there's ways of measuring how your customers are feeling about the way your, your business operates and works. One of the common ways of, of measuring that is called net promoter score. And there's a kind of, there's an experience metrics. Is that getting embraced? I, when I was in the US a few years ago doing some events, it was very big. NPS scores were huge. They don't seem to have kind of taken off in Australia. What's your thoughts on that whole NPS environment? No, it's really good. I mean, it can be really, having some way of measuring kind of what your know, customer friction or customer points is really important. It has been used really, really impactfully in some places and some businesses. So and one of the ones I think is one of the highlights, I think in Australia is Medibank. So Medibank uses NPS quite broadly and they actually used it in a way where I thought it was pretty ingenious where they flipped it around from actually being just a lagging metric of how customers are feeling to being a leading metric of operational risk and financial risk. So what that meant was as soon as you start talking about risk, it goes up to the board. The board said, yep, we're going to pay attention to this. And all of a sudden the whole business paid attention to it. And that sort of drove forward a kind of a customer centric view inside the organization. How important is a customer-centric deal? I do, I deal with a lot of smaller businesses, so not your, your larger corporates and things. How important is that in a small business or you know, a smaller growing business? The only purpose of a business is to create a customer. You know, So if you're not creating a customer and you're not keeping a customer happy, then you're not really going to exist, are you? So I'd say having a really customer-centric view is incredibly important. I mean, 
that became very, very, very talked about in the early 2000s because customers all of a sudden had a channel for feedback that they never had before in the form of social media. But that was really a moment that started to drive the idea of, of customer centricity. Now it's really becoming about customer, you know, it could be, you know, taking that customer, understanding them deeper and thinking about how you can, you know, evolve your revenue streams around understanding your customer at a, at a deeper level. Absolutely. And I think if we've seen that definitely in, in, at least in the small business arena that I play in, that people are very quick to make choices to go elsewhere. And usually yep. the reviews they put are the bad ones and not the good ones. Yep. So therefore, the if you don't focus on giving them a good experience, you're going to get hit pretty hard pretty quickly and someone's just going to Google an alternative to you and go somewhere else. Yep. And obviously that that new landscape, I think, in digital landscape is keeping or forcing people to be, to be lifting their game and, and keeping them honest. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's where NPS is a bit more useful than something like Google, whereas it has like a middle and there's a, a spectrum, <laughs> whereas Google and Facebook, you're either five or you suck, which is, you know, not fair if you think about it. So, Mark, that experience, was that pre or post digital? Like, what the hell is digital? Everyone is saying <laughs> digital, digital, digital and digital transformation. I, I saw this comic the other day on, on LinkedIn and it had about eight boxes and it goes, right, everyone, we're going to do our digital transformation now. What do we need? And it's just like everyone just blurting out whatever the first thing that comes into their head, that's digital transformation. But what is it and, and how do you do it? And what's the most important thing about it? Let's yeah. start with why. To kind of explain what digital transformation is, we need to kind of talk about the difference between digitization and digital transformation. So digitization is basically taking here are all the processes, here are the things that we do as a business and the, the way that we interact with our customer. And we're basically just going to put a technology wrapper around that. You're not actually changing the way you do business. You're just trying to do things a bit faster or, you know, a bit more automated. So when, when you hear terms like SaaS or when you hear about these huge products that take over the world and they measure how many boxes you've got left and how many boxes before you need to order something new, like an SAP or something. Is that digitization? Is that taking like fairly manual processes and turning it into a computer? It can be. Depends on the strategy of the business. If they go and approach a digital transformation with the right lens, which is how do we use technology to change the way that our people and our customers interact? And it's not just about doing the same stuff that we've always done, but it's slightly, slightly cheaper. And they're willing to look at new revenue streams, look at new ways of doing business. Then absolutely, they can any of those technologies. So you know, Salesforce and SAP or any of those kinds of things can completely change that way that business operates. If the business doesn't have that kind of level of thought to it, and are just sort of going at it, going, "Hey, we need to cut costs," that's what they're going to achieve. They, you know, they're going to cut costs. Maybe they will, maybe they won't. But they're not creating a new competitive advantage by doing that. They're just trying to keep up with everybody else. What's an example of a business that you've seen that's applied a successful digital strategy, so done digital transformation well? I think they're all ongoing at the moment. I, yeah, I don't well, think does it ever stop? Is, it, is digital transformation a start and a finish, or is it just what old people call moving into the new world? <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's pretty, pretty much that, I think. I, look, I mean, I think it, it never really finishes. You know, this business is doing incredibly, incredibly large business transformations that underpin by technology. So Telstra is a really good example of that. You know, they're really transforming the way they do business significantly and how and what that's going to look like long term. So they've, you know, they come out and said, we're going to move from being a telco to becoming a techco. 
they're always going to have elements of connectivity and, and telephony kind of at the core, but it's how do they build more value and new value by creating technology that sits on top of that. Um, and that's a massive change from you know, you know, a business that was all about poles and wires and engineering. And how do they do that? You look at the, the disruption that has come about in the digital era. You, you look at a, a bank and how much money a bank used to make out of transactions and how that's been completely disrupted, Bitcoin, wherever that ends up. How do legacy organizations transform quick enough and how do they stay relevant uh, given the, the power of Silicon Valley and the speed at which that that is an ecosystem in itself, is it not, where speed is the essence of what they do, whereas a legacy business doesn't necessarily have that speed. There's some interesting points you're raising there. <laughs> and I think it's, you know, it's particularly interesting in, in the Australian context, I think. What are you talking about there is how fast businesses move, how agile they are, you know, so the agile, you know. Yeah, that's a big term now and it seems something that people say but don't do or understand. Yeah, I mean, agile is, you know, there's a methodology and how we do, but fundamentally it's about how do we set our business up to be able to be faster at responding to market shifts than our competitors. That's fundamentally, you know, there's base core, that's really what it's about. And when a business is relatively stable and it doesn't have a burning platform, the politics and the overriding kind of way that it will operate will be about not really changing the status quo. You know, just really let's keep things fairly normal and we'll be ticking along nicely and, you know, we'll do a little bit of innovation stuff on the on the edge and, and so on. Um, and that's fundamentally the situation that Australia has been in for quite some time as an economy. You know, when GFC hit, we had mining, we had a relationship with China, everything was going pretty well. The rest of the world looked scary. There was a lot of innovation coming out of the US. We sort of went, oh, look, hey, new competitions emerging, we'll be fast followers. So it's really about, you know, sort of trying to catch up. Where we're at now is very fundamentally different. You know, so, so the COVID period has really shifted. I mean, people talk about the fact that you know, we've all moved online and we're you know, working from home and remotely. What's absolutely true, though, is there's going to be whole industries that don't look the same now and never will do, look the same. You know, the airline industry needs to completely change. The logistics supply chain you know, space needs to completely change. There is, you know, really obvious inequalities in the healthcare system in Australia that you know it's not hasn't been designed. It's just a function of of geography and, and population density, but technology is a way of addressing those. And you know those these are kind of the, some of the big issues that need to be you know start to be grappled with. And as a result, there's going to be new business models and potentially you know the next great Australian businesses will come off the back of it. That's definitely an interesting uh, space. Observing the you know the transition. I mean, back in it must have been the early mid 2000s we had set up business on the force.com platform building you know instances for different companies and one that was involved in uh, one of the major banks in australia and things like that and you know, i know what you're saying boo was it was it was like pulling teeth trying to get that gargantuan thing to move and to get people's buy-in and things like that in the context of smaller business though what what i've definitely seen and i'll get your obviously your take on this mark too is I feel that the, the smaller businesses have got that ability to be agile, but you've also got now those off-the-shelf digital products that we can utilize in a small business that are going to make a substantial difference quite quickly. And have you seen that happen in this space you know, in your own experience? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. That's 100% accurate. I mean, I think the, the access, so there's a range of technologies that are maturing all at once right now, which is also makes that the economy really interesting. The access to those technologies, you know, the, the barriers to entry is incredibly low. I mean, even things like AI, theoretically, a business 
with a couple of people could be up and running and building AI scripts. It's pretty amazing in terms of thinking about that technology. Is that the next major piece of disruption in, yeah. in technology is that AI piece? Is it going to be as ubiquitous as the internet? Again, AI, you know, it's not really intelligence, is it, yet? It's machine learning, automated decision-making. You know, it's got lots of different areas to it. Is it going to take over the world? I think that's Oh, yeah, it's going to eat everything, absolutely. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah, yeah. The singularity <laughs> event is real. You've heard yeah. it here. We're all going to be yeah. in the Matrix. We're all going to be batteries for the AI. Is yeah, that Skynet that uh, <laughs> Elon Musk's putting up? Is that that Skynet thing yeah. Terminator that he's doing now? But, it's, I mean, look, we're all... We're all interacting with it on a daily basis all the time anyway. So, you know, you just don't. I mean, the thing about AI I find really interesting is that once once an AI application has been achieved and it's scaled, it's no longer called AI. It's just called a thing. You know, it's got a brand on it or it's called Google Maps or it's called, you know, the latest release of Google or it's called Facebook or whatever else it is, yeah? It's like saying www. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But everything that people are imagining that we can create in another year that's called ai so ai is always kind of like the next horizon most of the time once we've achieved it then it becomes just normal but but i suspect there's there's so much human emotion and context we have to get over when it comes to ai hopping in an airplane that flies itself obviously it'll get there one day but there's going to be some real human challenges isn't it as opposed to some other technologies like horses going to cars that kind of made sense but when you're outsourcing your thinking, I imagine that plays to a deeper human emotion. Yeah. I mean, I don't know. It's an interesting question. I reckon, I mean, are we outsourcing our thinking or are we outsourcing our wasted time? How much of the things that we do on a daily basis, like driving a car, could we be doing something more interesting? How much of the time of our day that we're doing, which could be admin or, you know, setting up gallery, could we be doing something else? That's where AI is really starting to sort of play more and more of a role of just picking up the pieces and, you know, sort of freeing you up to do more valuable stuff. And that's where you're seeing automation, AI and so on play a big part inside corporations and businesses right now, where it's actually allowing the people to do what they're really good at, which is be creative, think about new ideas, interact with other people, collaborate, all that kind of stuff, which is actually where the real value is generated, not doing repetitive tasks. How do you see the, the I suppose, the business landscape changing you know, fast forward 10, 15, maybe 20 years when this stuff is really, really embedded into day-to-day activity within most businesses. What, what do you see the change in, I suppose, culture, in in the roles that people will be playing in, their, in the businesses and the opportunities that could present? And maybe even like based on what's there now, what are the things that are just about to go mature and mainstream? So one of the things that we talk about a lot is the automated or the, you know, sort of semi-autonomous kind of enterprise. And I think what's going to happen there is it, it's going to make businesses a lot more transparent because it kind of has to. Okay, so there is a type of AI called conversational AI, and you probably have sort of dealt with that a bit, you know, through things like Amazon Alexa or, you know, kind of like Google Home and so on. But there's a whole range of technologies that sit underneath that. Conversational AI is going to essentially become our interface layer to all of the data that we've created over the last few decades. So at the moment, all that data is kind of hidden away somewhere and it's very hard to get value out of it. But what conversational AI will do will be allow us to just ask simple questions and then be able to get value. Now, going back to the kind of the fully automated enterprise or organization or business. So let's imagine a business like a bank, for example. You've got a range of different stakeholders. You've got a member of the board. You've got a shareholder. You've got a CEO. You've got the CFO. You've got 
you know, a manager level, maybe a director level, you're going to, you know, frontline employee, and then you've got a customer. Every single one of them could use the same interface, as long as the interface knew who, you, who they were, to ask the same question. What are the five things I need to think about today when it comes to this business? Or, you know, how do I get this little bit of information quickly? And business would be able to go through all of the information that is contained within that organization and be able to pop back up and say, hey, CEO, here are the four things you need to focus on. Hey, frontline staff, these are the things you need to think about today. Hey, customer, here's how we can help you today. Gosh, good luck with that with the average consumer, hey? Wow. <laughs> yeah. So, Mark, the fuse about the people that do what they do. So why do you do this? Where, where did all of this bright spark moment, where did you decide that you'd be a bit of a thought leader and, and own this space? What, what happened? I fell into it a bit, like most people, along the sort of squiggly road to being to where I got to. So I started my career in advertising, sort of marketing space in New Zealand. And then I was there for a couple of years and then, well, you were there for a few years. Then I went into a, one of New Zealand's first sort of really big digital agencies and, you know, worked on a lot of kind of big, at that point, this is, you know, sort of late nineties. So it was big websites. What was digital like in the nineties? It was cowboys. It was, you know, just, it was anything we wanted it to be pretty much. <laughs> fax machines. Was, wasn't it digital fax machines about that? Game? Yeah. 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 <laughs> it was, yeah. I mean, we're just building big websites and trying to get people to, you know, like just, coming up with different, you know, interesting ways for people to interact with businesses. And we were inventing languages. We went and just said, okay, and followed along. It was kind of, you know, kind of interesting. By 2000, I was like, okay, I've done quite a lot in, in New Zealand and I really want to head overseas and, you know, sort of explore what's going on. I was planning on coming to Melbourne for a short period of time, maybe a couple of years, and then heading off to New York. But I came over here in April 2001, and then September 2001 came along and all of a sudden there was, you know, twin towers falling down and the job I'd lined up in New York sort of ceased to exist. And by that stage, I was kind of a freelance sort of gun for hire. And then by about 2003, I joined the company I'm with now, 2007, by 2007, had taken it over, restructured it away from being kind of marketing and comms to being a digital agency. And then we sort of took it through a few different iterations of transformation to being what we are now, which is more of a management consultancy in the digital space. So advisors and helping, you know, so helping board members understand things and working with complex organizations like Telstra and hospitals and you know, universities and so on, think through their digital transformation challenges. And on the pathway there, I started writing a lot about what digital was going to do to our economy and our society. So I started writing that just as a blog. And then I got picked up by a couple of magazines. And then they said, hey, could you write it right for us? And then BRW said, hey, could you write a, a feature article for us? And then they said, hey, that was really good. Could you write a column? So that became once a month, then once every two weeks, then once a week. And then all of a sudden I was kind of a media commentator. And then, yeah, now now I write for Forbes and yeah. How do you balance all of that? Because it's a, you know, it is a challenge once you start to, you get into the media, you start writing. I, mean, I owned a publishing business for about three years there and, it, and I just found the whole thing utterly consuming. There's never an off button. You can write as much as you want and it will suck it up and use it. So how do you find that balance between thought leadership, between influencing the market, running your own business, balancing all the other elements in your life? What's your rhythm? What's your trick? I mean, for me, as much as possible, to try and stay focused on strategic value to my business and to my customers and my client partners. So not really get, trying to get too sucked up into the actual delivery of real projects but actually staying really at that kind of 
what are the hard questions that customers are asking? What are the big worries that they're thinking about? What are they asking? What does that mean? That then allows me to then think about that deeply, write articles about it, and then come up with answers, and then maybe develop a, you know, a new way forward. So that's kind of where I try to spend most of my time. But, you know, hey, that's not always not always possible. Mm-hmm. So, on, and then on that journey, obviously, as you said, we all have a bit of a, a snaking road, a bit of a winding road to where we are yeah. today. And I'm sure there's still more corners and hairpins and, you know, hairy cliffs on one side and stuff like that we're going to go past. But how do you process or how do you deal with setbacks or failure or whatever you call it? How do you foresee that and overcome those situations where you, you are blocked or you have a setback of some kind? Yeah, I try and try and fewer and fewer. Um, <laughs> get better at trying to look at patterns and understand what's going on rather than sucked into too much execution. In the digital space, it's kind of baked into what we do. You know, like it really is part of the philosophy. I think you were talking about Silicon Valley. That whole idea is start small, sort of fail fast, find something that works and then build on it and then iterate and iterate and iterate and work with customers and collaborate. That's kind of baked into kind of the way that we think in many ways. But, you know, it doesn't mean that you don't sort of make big mistakes and fail along the way and have, you know, sort of big blowouts. And that's that's just a matter of how quickly you can sort of bounce back from it and building up resilience over time. I know even from a consumer level, you'll you'll hear like a, a Facebook update or a, phone, a firmware update and all of a sudden it's like, whoa, what's going on? Why'd they do this? <laughs> yeah. But it's instantaneous and it's around the world with these big tech providers. I once spoke to CEO, one of our biggest FMCG groups, and he, and he said to me, he goes, never trust a consumer to know what they want to consume. Within the digital space, there must be an element of that too, right? Because most people 10 years ago didn't know they, they wanted a smartphone, right? They didn't know that. But someone did, and someone created these intelligent devices that uh, I remember having one of the first Palm Pilots. You think of how far that's come. How do you gauge what a consumer wants in the digital world? Given how fickle humans are, how do you, how do you map and deploy at speed to meet what the consumer demand is? Yeah. I mean, there's been a bit of a, you know, legend created about that stuff. You know, like never, uh, never trust a consumer or don't ask consumers what they want, tell them what they want type stuff. And, you know, that's what Steve Jobs did and blah. I think there's somewhat flawed thinking sometimes. The reason for it is that somebody like Steve Jobs or some, some, there's very few people in the world who can actually see through what's going on and identify an unmet need. You know, Uber's a really good example. The unmet need was actually taxis are dirty, taxis are not a great experience. I'm sick and tired of having to take my credit card out every time. I hate losing things in it. You know, like the whole taxi experience was, was not very nice. And if we build a bit of technology wrapper around that and make it more transparent for both drivers and passengers, then we can help improve that experience. I think that's a good example. Um, and it's the same thing with you know with mobile phones. You know, when Steve Jobs came up with their first you know iPhone, everybody thought he was insane because you know it didn't have keys on it. Actually, what he was realizing was that people were going to spend more time on these devices. They were going to become more powerful, and they were going to become one of our primary computing and devices. And here's how he's going to set that platform up. You know, if you don't have that kind of person inside your organization who can just see into a market and go, here's exactly what's going to happen, then you do have to spend time with customers going through a process of inquiry, developing empathy for them and understanding them so you can then start to innovate. And there's, you know, methodologies 
with things like design thinking and you know see human centered design principles that have accelerated the way that that works at scale awesome so one one other question i'd like to cover is is slightly different tangent but uh you know, one of the things we do find in talking with people on the podcast here is there's a number of themes. There's a lot of thematics that, that seem to pop out. One of those is about those people that you have around you, the people you surround yourself with. How important do you feel the people that have, are the closest to you and you've had on your journey, how important have they been to allowing you to move forward and do what it is you do? Absolutely vital. I couldn't do any of the things that I do without, you know, sort of really great people around me, without people who know how where my strength, what my strengths are, what my weaknesses are, and how to enable me to play to my strengths rather than try and improve my weaknesses, because that's not going to benefit anybody. That's not going to make me happy, that's for sure. <laughs> that's what your partners are for. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah absolutely. I mean, I think, um, you know, those words, every time I hear words similar to that, I, mean, I might have my dad's voice ringing in my ears. He told me that when I was, you know, sort of about 17 or so, when I was sitting there doing his job, and he said, you know, look, whatever you do in life, Think about what your strengths are and then surround yourself with people who have strengths and your weaknesses. And I think, yeah, it's always the better that works, the better, the better it is for everybody. Obviously, that changes through a, a life well lived. And, and as you ride success, you probably look for different things and your risk profiles change. So have you found that as you move through, you've, you've sort of adjusted that peer group around you and found at this point in life that you've got the, the right balance or have you had the same sort of peer group all the way through from day zero? No, I mean, I've been, you know, it's been uh, moved around a bit and seen things. So yeah, definitely different people. But surround me, you know, I mean, have lots of really interesting conversations with, you know, so either have the direct people I'm working with and, you know, sort of direct partners and, I mean, making sure, you know, that that's obviously, you know, always going to be very, very deep relationships. And then, then just make sure I have lots and lots and lots of conversations with really, really smart people. I particularly like engaging with, you know, doing work in the university space because I end up just having great conversations with really smart people who are far smarter than me in a range of different areas and just, you know, understand where to develop those relationships and where make sure that people are going to give you a sort of honest feedback. And also look for support networks of some sort. As a business leader and a business owner, I mean, that's the most important thing, having external networks where people can sort of say, hey, I know what you're doing, you think it's great, but actually you're slightly insane. Try it a different way. (laughs) That's good. That means you're pushing the right way, right? You're going in the right direction. Otherwise, you go for far too long down the wrong garden path and uh, no one's there to tell you. So it's so prevalent in the small business space that people just put their head down, bum up, and they just go and they push and they push and they don't have that network. They don't have those people around them to be a sounding board to, you know, as Boo would say, to red team, you know, to double check, to stress test those ideas and those concepts. And it is such an incredibly important thing. And in your journey as well, through your career so far, and what, what would three of the biggest learnings that you've taken away that have helped you to progress forward on, on the path that you, you now find yourself on? So I mentioned before about strategic value, like for the business, for me, for my customers, knowing what that is. How does that loop work for you? Like a lot of people would hear that and go, yeah, I need strategic value. And then they're going to go, but how do I do that? What strategic value? How do you ensure that you're doing that? What kind of habits and and thoughts and behaviors do you have that allow you to, to continue to create that? So strategic value is really about joining dots, creating new value out of things that weren't there before and helping bring partners or bring people together that weren't there before. So strategic value is if you're actually delivering the value that the business creates, you're probably not doing it. 
So, you know, how are you how are you surrounding yourself with people who are actually doing the day-to-day work or the day, you know, the, the billable stuff or the, the money generating side of it? So you're sort of freed up to go, what's next? How does the business grow? How do we partner? What's the best next step for our business? What's the next best thing for our customer? And how do I take them a new idea? How do I help them see the world in a slightly different way? And that could be tough. Yeah. Some clients just, they don't see it, right? There's this book called Proof of Heaven, and it's about this neurosurgeon that has a neural cortex, has an infection, and he spends seven days wandering the next life. You know, take that for what you mean, whether it really happened or it was his brain. But he talks about this purgatory where it's like a muck layer, and, and people just get real comfortable there. Like they they know that they can move up, and there's better better options and better solutions, but they're just comfortable with everyone else in the muck. How do you do that? How do you create influence in particularly in large organizations with their inertia, do you, do you basically just have to find the right organization? Do you need to find the organization that matches the same mindset as you? Or can you impart your mindset on an organization that doesn't have growth mindset? I know you can. Absolutely, you can do it on a yeah, sort of you know, slower and bigger organization. It's just understanding what drives them. You know, it's really getting down to what's everybody's KPIs, how are they tied together, what's the strategy of the organization? Again, you know, trying to understand what everybody's incentives and are, and then going, okay, how do I simplify that down to a single story? So, you know, with some of our larger partners, it's like, okay, well, for them, it's all going to be about growth. How do we think about the ratio of value? So for every dollar they're spending on us, how much value are we creating for them? And if we're able to go back to them and go, hey, look, you know, a year ago, for every dollar you were spending on us, we were creating about $30 of value. But now we're creating $150 of value, and this is what the trajectory could look like, then everybody's on the same page. And what else? So you got strategic value. Any other pillars or kind of just things that you personally fall back on when you're problem solving or or setting yourself up for success? Never stop learning. <laughs> I think that, you know, it's sort of one of those things that, you know, just always be curious and never try and, if possible, try and keep your ego in check and go, hey, I'm ne- never going to be the smartest guy in the room and don't try to be. Um <laughs> There's always going to be somebody who's smarter. So just just keep learning. Just keep make sure you're learning off every single person and every every single conversation, every single interaction as much as possible. That's, you know, I think that's always, always valid and always going to be really, really useful. So to do that, mate, just a, just a curious one here about in the digital space, do you still read books on paper or are you just everything on a screen? Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I read books on paper. Books have got a place in the future. Yeah, yeah. Still gets, just occasionally still get the same magazines that are delivered to some with something other than an iPad. Yep. <laughs> also got strategy, got curiosity, never give up, always keep consuming and learning. Yeah. I speak the other one is identify the vacuum, particularly if you're dealing with a, um, a large organization or you're dealing with complex markets and so on. Understand where that vacuum is. So understand where is it is a vacuum in decision making? Is it a vacuum in capability? Is it a vacuum in what is preventing something moving forward? And then have the courage to just step into that vacuum and go, hey, just tell everybody, hey, this is what we're going to do. Because if everybody's feeling that there's, you know, there's something wrong and they aren't able to make a decision or they aren't able to progress forward, what they're actually looking for is somebody to give them permission to do it. So quite often I'd just Let's just step into that vacuum and just say, hey, come on, I'm going this way, everybody follow. That's a really good point, actually. And that's that's an area around leadership, I think, that that can struggle a little bit with this, given that the people who are in, in leadership roles can be a long way detached from what the digital world looks like. I find it fascinating when some companies you go in and you're talking to very senior people in IT and their iPhone is, is about six years old with a broken screen. <laughs> uh, yeah. so, so with leadership in mind, 
and with this digital juggernaut that's never going to end, what are the keys to success for leaders to help support that? Because everyone's going to have a great idea. There's going to be lots of options and decision-making is much faster in the digital world. So what what are the keys for leaders to be successful and what are they, what's the best thing they can do in terms of enhancing their team and capabilities to, to make sure that they keep pace, actually not just keep pace, but to lift and embrace digital and, and transform their businesses? Best practice is bullshit. That's one. <laughs> um, and a lot of businesses in Australia have gone, oh, what is, what's happening over in the US and we're going to do that without sort of really going through the process of going, okay, US, very different market. Also, you know, they've got 400 million people and we haven't got anything like that. And so whatever was best practice for US in terms of, you know, implementing technology, this may not scale. The other point is quite often best practice then those kind of ideas around best practice is really just, just doing what everybody else is doing. It's not actually saying, okay, what makes our brand and our relationship with our customers different, unique, interesting? And then how do we think about a digital overlay to that? You know, rather than going, okay, we're just going to do the same stuff as everybody else. So, you know, so Nike, you know, is a really good example, I think. So back in early 2000s or maybe mid, sort of, you know, 2004, 2005, their digital strategy could have been the same as everybody else's, which is just let's collect as much data as we possibly can. We'll focus on online ads. We'll do a bit of email marketing and, you know, everybody will be happy. But they were going, actually, what's our brand about? Our brand is about performance. How can we help our customers perform better? And how can we use technology to do that? And so they went through and created, you know, what became Nike Plus, which was originally a, you know, a sensor in a shoe that counted how many steps you're doing and a kind of like a pretty rudimentary online platform. I remember that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And then it became a wristband and then it became an app on your phone and then it became a suite of apps. Now it's on your, your, your iPhone or your iWatch. It's like a health and well-being platform now, isn't it? Yeah, 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 exactly. It's sort of like a whole range of different platforms. Now, that, I mean, they, yes, they've collected all that information. And yes, they know probably within the space of a couple of weeks when you've run your shoes and when they're likely to probably need being replaced. So, you know, they've got that information. But more importantly, they've helped you perform. They've encouraged you. They've tried to find ways to get you to get out and do exercise more and live their brand promise. And, you know, it's not a large stretch from reality to think that in the not too distant future, there'll be... Um, AI-driven personal assistant, you know, Nike voice going, hey, here's your custom-designed fitness program today. And then you might have a bit more of a personal relationship with that brand. And that digital technology, I mean, I use the Nike Run Club app, and I've used that for about five or six years now, I think. And from an accountability framework, from the fact that you've got friends on there, you can see what they're doing, what you're doing. As you said, you can see how far your shoes have gone. And as you say, once you bring in the, the AI piece, it's really going to start to be tailored for for exactly that person and what they're looking to do i mean this is you know one of the things that we advise a lot but every good tech strategy has what is our platform at the corner at the basis of it and a platform isn't about trying to solve every single problem that a customer has but it's about creating a, a series of enabling technologies that allows your customer and all of their ecosystem to innovate on top of what you do and that's kind of what, you know, Nike's platform was actually, well, it's not, we're not actually about selling shoes and selling clothes. We're about performance. Selling shoes and selling clothes is kind of like a right that we've earned because of that. Let's just focus on helping our customers perform better. The digital platform will be focused on that performance and how customers interact with that. And as a result, we'll create a real sticky brand and people will buy more of our stuff. 
Yeah, that's awesome. That's awesome. So in your uh, journey, what's one or couple of pieces of, of wisdom and knowledge that you've learnt now in your stage of life and career and everything? If you were to go back to a younger version of yourself, what would those things be that you would tell yourself? What advice would you give? Buy shares in Nike. <laughs> yeah, buy shares in Apple. Buy shares. <laughs> yeah. Uh, look, I think um, always back yourself. You know, if you've got a really clear vision and you think you've you've spotted an area of the market that can be improved, just back yourself. Just go with it. Quite often, you've got to keep going at it and and allow the market to catch up, because you know um, that's quite often innovative mindset spots things before the rest of the world does, and that's a good thing. So yeah, sort of just back yourself and wait for the rest of the world to catch up. It's often quite good. I think we were talking about it before as well. One other thing is when you understand who you are. Focus on the things that you do really well and build on that. Don't try and constantly work on the things that you're not particularly good at because you're just wasting your time. It's not about being a well-rounded person. It's about being exceptional in one thing. You know, Again, taking somebody like Steve Jobs as an example, he was exceptional at a couple of things and pretty sure at everything else, and that's fine. <laughs> no, that's awesome, mate. One more thing I was interested in, Mark, is somewhere in your journey you went from being an employee to being – a leader and self-sustaining. Where was that tipping point? At which point in time? Because a lot of people want that journey, right? A lot of people feel like, no, I've got enough knowledge, I've got enough experience. And I think fear holds most people back because by the time you make that decision, you're probably in a nice middle management job, a couple hundred grand a year. What was that tipping point that made you back yourself and get into being that gun for hire and then building your own business? Well, for me, I mean, you know, there was an element of geography because I got in a plane and came to another country. So, you know. <laughs> um, yeah, Does that was... mean you couldn't get a job or <laughs> they credited it instead? Yeah, yeah. I, was, I think it looked like, uh, looked like sort of freelancing was, you know, was, was a, a good way to go. But, you know, sort of making that jump, making that leap, it's not going to be easy. It is not going to be as safe feeling as sitting in a job and, and helping somebody else get rich. But if you feel like you have to and you feel like you've got some real value to add to the world and you've got something really, really interesting you need to do, then you must do that. And that wraps up another episode of The Few. Thank you to our partners, Afterburner, for team building, development and alignment. We understand now how important it is to have the right people around you. Get them on board with where you want to go. Momentum Media, the largest industry publisher in the country, connecting your business to the Australian community. ICMI, Australia's premier speaker bureau, representing the few that do fulfill their life's purpose. And finally, Sean's Inner Circle, the business coaching organization for small and medium enterprises looking to make that next step. Thanks again for listening in and downloading today. Please leave a review on whatever platform you are currently listening to this podcast and reach out to our partners who can help you make the transition to the few. That's good advice. That's fantastic. Thanks so much, Mark, for coming on to the, the podcast today. I really appreciate it and those insights as well. And it's clear that you've got a very, very pragmatic uh, approach to digital. And, and I think a lot of people get overawed by it, but it just is what it is, right? And it's there to enhance everything that you do. So don't overthink it. Might be the best bit of advice for people looking at their, and embarking on their own digital transformation. Don't think about technology at all. Like, honestly, just don't think about it. Just think about your business model. Think about your people, so your, your customers and your staff, and then the technology piece will sort itself out down the track. But don't start with yep. technology because you're guaranteed to fuck it up. <laughs> what a great closing note there. So, yeah, really, really appreciate it, Mark. Awesome, Mark. Thanks so much. Really appreciate you coming in. Cheers. Thanks, guys. Thanks.
This has been The Few Podcast with Boo and Sean. If you've got value from this episode and you would like to support us, please share it with your friends. If you're posting this on social media, use the hashtag The Few so we can see who's listening. The Few Podcast is recorded at Momentum Media in Sydney, Australia. To listen to more episodes, visit us at fewpodcast.com and make sure you subscribe so you never miss an episode. Dream big, keep pushing, and one day you can become one of the few. We'll see you next week.